Hello, I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. And before we get to this week's dinner party, we wanted to quickly ask if you could maybe help pay for it. Yeah, it's been an entire year since we asked for your support. And in that time, we've hosted almost 50 of these parties. 50. They've been a lot of fun. And yeah. although we really enjoy your company, you know, it'd be great if you could kind of chip in. So please, donate the equivalent of a bottle of wine. Or a bottle of gin. Sure, or a bottle of wine, gin, and maybe a little something for dessert. Yeah. Nice. And if you've been listening, you know we will not spend the dessert money on cupcakes. No way. We have values. Yeah. Weird ones, but values. Honestly, any amount is appreciated. Head to our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and click on the button that says Donate. Your contribution helps fund public radio, and it sends a message to our company that you think the dinner party is worth supporting. We know. Blah, blah, blah. But it does make a difference. Please donate. Truly. And now... On with the show. Well done. I've always wanted to say that. Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. I'm partly Irish. That doesn't really make a difference, but... Um, who's Irish and lives in your backyard? I don't know who. Patio furniture. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Ransom Riggs, author of the bestseller Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children. That'll help break the ice. The green ice at this St. Patty's Day. Bigora. Begore to you. Later, we'll speak with Ewan McGregor, star of the new film Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And he's, of course, from Scotland. Lots of Celts on this show. It's a Celtic show. Also coming up, Casey Wilson, star of the TV series Happy Endings, and Emily Post's great-grandchildren return to answer your etiquette questions. But first, reality. And normally you would hear some news here, but you already listened to us ask for your money, so skip it. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, Trevor Powers of the band Youth Lagoon will give us a dinner party soundtrack. Spoiler alert, it includes everything from Towns Van Zant to booty jams. Which isn't so strange because Van Zant can be seen as, you know, cowboy booty jams. <laughs> I refuse to dignify that with the response, sir. So quickly, as at any dinner party, let's start with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The NCAA men's basketball tournament is underway in earnest. The Republican primary infighting continues. The South by Southwest Music Conference and Festival takes over town. Now for something you haven't heard, we turn to Jessica Cohen. She is the editor-in-chief of Jezebel, a women's culture website. Jessica, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? This weekend, I'm going to be talking about a tiny, wonderful little genius. <laughs> a six-year-old girl from Virginia has just qualified for the National Spelling Bee, and uh, she is the youngest contestant ever. Really? Wow. And she's been in Spelling Bee since she was three and a half. Man, how do you spell precocious? I don't even know. That's how <laughs> yeah, not neither qualified do I. I Good am. question, Rachel. I mean, what were you guys doing at three and a half? Because I was drooling. <laughs> That's right. I think I was eating at that point. <laughs> what Do we know what the qualification process is for this thing? I mean, like how many levels? I mean, of... I, I assume it's like beauty pageants, but for nerds. Like you go through different, <laughs> local, your local competition and then the city and then the yeah. county or whatever. So she was in the final round for the state of Virginia. 21 or 22 contestants, and she took it home. Well, maybe this isn't that big a deal. What is the word that she spelled? What did she win with? The word is vaquero. What? I think I used to drive a vaquero. Wasn't Brenda Vaccaro a a star in the 1970s on TV? I think we're both wrong so far. And and I I did a, I like made sure I was pronouncing it right. Vaquero. Can we buy a vowel? Um, (laughs) (laughs) This is a different game. Oh, sorry. You could buy an A. That's what I was saying. Would it be V A C A R O? No. Go. V-A. What did you say, Rico, after that? I said V-A-C-A-R-O. Okay, well, I'm not going to say that then. Yeah. V-A-C-E-R-O. No. Oh, Two C's in the middle? No. It's actually a Spanish word. Oh, we... But it's used commonly in Texas, Spanish for uh... cowboy. And it's V-A-Q-U-E-R-O. Whoa. They didn't say it was an international spelling bee. <laughs> but they, I think this is one of the things to be a star spelling bee champion. You ask that question. It's like, what is the provenance of this word? And they'll tell right. you it's a Spanish word. But, I mean, six years old, she's going to be now in the most high-pressure televised program. Is she going to, you know, crack under pressure doing I that? I mean, she's given interviews, and she is so calm. 
calm and composed, she could actually perform well, in which case she peaked at six years old. And that's really tough. <laughs> now I feel better about this whole thing. Yeah, I mean, there you go. we have our lives ahead of us, right? <laughs> Jessica oh, Cohen, thanks for the small talk. Thanks for having me. And now time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you about something that happened this week in history and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our palate-pleasing history lesson with booze. First, the history part. This week, back in 1781, a new planet was discovered. Yes, one that took almost as long to name as it took to discover. Michelle Philippi tells the story. Sir William Herschel gave new meaning to the term, the music of the spheres. Born in Germany, he moved to England as a teen and made a name for himself as a composer. You're listening to one of his symphonies. But Herschel was one of those guys who's always throwing off the grade curve. Once he mastered music, he just had to master math, which got him interested in astronomy. So interested that when he couldn't afford a telescope, he made his own. Soon his telescopes were considered the best in the country. And on March 13, 1781, he was using one in his backyard when he spotted what he thought was a comet. Turned out, it was a planet. The first new one to be discovered in thousands of years. King George III knighted Herschel, set him up with a sweet salary, and asked him to name the new world. Herschel wisely went with Georgium Cetus, George's star. It was the first planet not named for a Roman god. Herschel thought that was appropriate for his enlightened era. Of course, he and other enlightened men of the day also thought the sun was probably inhabited. Anyway, the name wasn't a big hit, especially with the French, who weren't psyched about a planet named for an English king. For a while, they just called it Herschel. But 70 years later, even England agreed on the name Uranus, after the Greek god of the sky. And yes, that's the correct pronunciation. Though giggling grade schoolers of our enlightened era will beg to differ. So that's the history now for the drink to serve with it. I am talking with Dan Boggs. He is behind the bar at A-plus in Houston, home of NASA. And Dan, you heard the history. What drink does it inspire you to make? Uh, it's called the Astronauties Deep Space Freeze. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I almost hesitate to ask you what's in it because the name is so great that <laughs> I can't possibly live up to it. Well, it uh, basically uh, has a blueberry puree because it looks like a deep space blue. Uh, also, the planet Uranus is blue. So, it's Uranus, uh, dude. Uranus. Yep, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's a rum-based drink. I use uh, 10 cane rum, the blueberry puree, and then a, just a dash of lemon juice and put a little bit of maple syrup in there. That's the secret ingredient. Maple, what? <laughs> just a little bit of maple syrup instead of like simple syrup. Why? Well, with the rum... And, you know, blueberry, it's almost like uh, blueberry pancakes a little bit, but uh, better because it has rum in it. You know, I'm, uh, I have to say that it suddenly occurs to me, though, that if this is an astronaut drink, it really should have tang in it. But <laughs> well, I didn't have any tang laying around, so I had to uh, improvise with what I had. So how do you finish it off? Well, basically, it's a martini, so you really want to shake the hell out of it and make it really, really cold, like deep space, and serve it up in a martini glass. And I have fresh blueberries that I've been garnishing it with, or you could use a uh, lemon twist. This could be like the official astronaut's drink. You probably don't want to be too boozed up out there. Um, but, that's uh, true. A lot of people don't know that's uh, why things went haywire on Apollo 13. <laughs> Houston, we have a problem. We drank a dozen mojitos. And, Brendan, I should note, Houston is specifically where NASA does a lot of astronaut training. Yeah, not so, a lot of demand for them these days. No. Right? Sadly. But it's it's going to be okay for the local economy, I think, because our bartender there just invented tasty, drinkable pancakes that make you tipsy. That's right. That should attract some tourist dollars. I would think so. And some grounded astronauts who are have nothing else to do. That's very likely. Uh, folks, you can find our drink recipes in cyberspace dinnerpartydownload.org
So we've set you up with small talk and a cocktail. Next essential ingredient of any dinner party would be some music. And here with a few suggestions is Trevor Powers. He plays indie pop under the pseudonym Youth Lagoon. Trevor's played eight gigs and counting at this week's South by Southwest Music Festival down in Austin. Here is picks for your own private music conference. My name is Trevor Powers, um, also known as Youth Lagoon, and here I am to introduce you to my dinner party soundtrack. My first track is by uh, Towns Van Zandt, and the song is called For the Sake of the Song, and here it is. Oh, but nothing's what it seems. Maybe she'll start someday to realize If she abandons her dreams Then all the words she can't say are only lies I think it's a great track for uh, the opening of the dinner party as the guests are filtering in and everyone's taking their seats. It's a very, you know, I guess open, honest record, very inviting. I think that's why it captures me so much. She says that she knows that moments are rare, I suppose, but it's true. This record came out in 1968. It's very, like, folk-driven. Bob Dylan was influenced by him, but he's never had the same recognition. A lot of the songs have kind of fallen through the cracks. Maybe she just has to sing for the sake of the song. The name of my second track is Baby's Romance. It's by an artist called Chris Garneau. This record came out in 06. It's another very minimalistic track. It's almost a piano ballad. The baby sleeping in the crib on top. The baby sleeping above you. You will lift him to the parking lot. Your car is waiting there for you. It's one of those songs that's built around, I guess, a very simple rhyme pattern and very simple chord patterns. You know, sometimes simple rhymes can bother people, but for me, it's like, just kind of gives off a childish demeanor. I can't picture it any other way. Cooperate with me and answer me without a it's a very raw track, you know, I picture him being a friend and sitting down and saying, hey, I wrote a new song, and here it is, you know, and just playing it for me on the piano, you know, that's that's kind of the vibe that I get because it's so raw and so not dressed up at all. I know now, I know now, I know now, I'm never gonna doubt on you, I know now, I know now, I know now, I'm never gonna All right, the last track of my dinner party um, is a party song. It's by an artist named Sierra. The name of this track is Goodies. This is a very personal jam, but I hope you guys can relate to it, and I hope you love it as much as I do. My goodies, my goodies. It's one of those radio hits that I adore. This track features Petey Pablo, and Petey Pablo's second verse is when the loners at the dinner party would rise from their corners, meet in the middle of the room, and start to get freaky. Maybe I would be the only one dancing. But I think I'd be okay with that. Man, I don't know if I'd play my own track at my dinner party. (laughs) Actually, I know I wouldn't. But since you guys ask... It's one of those songs that really, really means a lot to me, so this is Cannon's. Dinner Party soundtrack courtesy of Trevor Powers, a.k.a. Youth Lagoon. 
If you didn't catch him at one of the Jillian shows he played this week at the South by Southwest Music Festival, fear not, he's on tour. And I want to be one of the loners at his party that rises up, <laughs> spurred on by top 40 dance music. I just picture a bunch of guys eating TV dinners. <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting to get someone on to do a, a soundtrack for a TV dinner party. <laughs> All right. Henry Rollins. Uh, folks, we're going to take a break. Later, a chat with Ewan McGregor. And coming up, author Heidi Julevitz gets inside your head. When the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Coming up, filmmaker David Gelb brings us wisdom from the world's greatest sushi chef. Mm. And later, actor Casey Wilson from the TV show Happy Endings tells us her favorite endings. And I guess these should all have spoiler alert in front of them. <laughs> Every single one. You've been warned. Mm. But first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And here with answers this week are Lizzie Post and Daniel Post-Senig. They are the great-great-grandchildren of Emily Post. They both work at the Emily Post Institute and are co-authors of Emily Post's Etiquette, the 18th edition. And they have very politely accommodated us by becoming regular guests on the show. But, you know, I don't know if we've ever asked you how your great-great-grandmother became the etiquette lady. What, you didn't read her biography? I'm sorry. No, I'm, I'm only on the Come 14th. Come on, guys. I'm only on the 14th edition. I'm working backwards. I'm getting ruder, by the way. She was an author. You know, she had to find a career of her own after she got divorced. Well, a divorcee. Yeah. Mm. Most people are surprised to learn that Emily was a career woman who yeah. wrote to support herself and her children. Yeah. She started off with, with romance like, novels yeah. and then switched to, to nonfiction. Did she have experience with advice giving or etiquette before? Was that what made her uniquely qualified? She'd had a lot of exposure <laughs> to New York society. Think Gilded Age, turn of the century. Uh, yeah. So she was born into money. She grew she up was. in Tuxedo Park, although it's, it's fascinating if you look at the first three or four editions, a, a shift happened very quickly from being these. this is the code of the upper class to these are functional yeah. manners for the emerging middle mm. class, industrial middle class. So this is perfect because we've got questions for you from uh, listeners of all classes. So, I'm pretty sure. Send in some questions and I'm going to start. Liz, great name, yeah. uh, Love it. sent this question in from Halifax. Liz says, I'm enjoying my lunch at a packed cafe when a couple comes along and, without a word, slip into the seats directly across from me at my table. Totally oblivious to the fact that they are intruding on my meal, they proceed to canoodle with each other for the next 20 minutes. Is there a non-confrontational way I could have corrected their faux pas? Is one obliged to share one's table when a restaurant is full? And let me just say canoodling, this is talking loudly. Is that kind of what they're doing? Or are they I, I don't know. That's a Canadian word. Oh, come on. They're slipping tongue. <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> hey. Yeah, that's not no, cool. No matter what it is, it's, it's clearly making Liz uncomfortable. But sure. what I love about this question is that Liz is asking for a non-confrontational way to deal with this. And there's so often people think that there are, like, silent cues that you can give. And, I mean... In some ways there are, you know, you extend a hand for a handshake and that kind of lets people know it's welcoming greeting and everything. Mm -hmm. But there is no like pour salt on the table and that means stay away. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. You could pour what... coffee on their pants maybe. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, that might indicate something. It might be a little confrontational. Yeah. But I do think that this is something where you've got to think about how confrontational are you feeling? Are, um, these people didn't ask to sit down, which I think is the negative in the situation is they're just straight up intruding on her space. But That's true. we had a crazy email or story a year or two ago where someone had gone to the movie theater and the person a couple rows down from them was texting and the guy just leaned over and said, I'm sorry, would you mind not texting? The light's really bothering me or something like that. The person got offended, got up, went out into their car, grabbed the meat thermometer they had just purchased, uh, whoa. and went back and stabbed the guy that asked them in the neck with the meat thermometer. So that's that's not what you should do, right? <laughs> I know. He's like, 98 degrees. Perfect. <laughs> that's what I was <laughs> But it's like, oh I mean, the, the trick is, is you want to get someone else to intervene because you never know who the crazy people are. You might want to get somebody else to do it for you, like the managers. Yeah. yeah. Sure. This is interesting. They're also, I don't know what's going on in Halifax, but one of the hip things in restaurant culture right now are peasant tables, communal tables, right. where people share. So this and is going to become more, little... of a, more of a problem That's right. or issue. We have a restaurant here in Burlington where you do this, and I've just never had a problem with anybody's behavior. Like, it's just never come up at those communal tables. Well, I think that no. might be where you live. It's a special place. Burlington, Vermont, <laughs> temperatures run a little lower, I think. No, no canoodling in uh, Burlington. Yeah, no one canoodles? <laughs> yes. It's for Connecticut. Heck no. 
Uh, here's our second question. This is a little shorter and straightforward. Uh, <laughs> Morgan via Facebook writes, why wasn't I allowed to put my elbows on the table as a kid? Great question. Good question. So you don't smash the table fairies. That's what I got told <laughs> when I was little once. <laughs> what? What? I was told that there were table fairies, and if you put your elbows on the table, you'd kill them. Oh, my, oh my God. goodness. Was there a lot of drinking going I on know. at what about, parties? What about the other pots and pans? How do the fairies avoid those? Apparently, there aren't cabinet fairies. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. So Anna Post, Lizzie's sister, has a, a, a great thing. She loves to say what she's presenting at business seminars. I'm about to settle a lot of marital disputes. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, Emily and her very first book thought it was flattering for a young woman to rest her elbow on the table while she leaned forward into conversation. There, there is no fundamental prescription against elbows on the table. Right. The idea is that you don't slouch, you keep an erect and upright posture, that you bring your food to you, not yourself to your food. So that You're not that- trying to guard your food. Well, exactly. that's what I was going to say. That's a prison thing. When you eat food, you put your arm around the plate. Oh, right. Spent a lot of time Great in prison, visual. have we? Yeah. <laughs> I was arrested for stabbing someone for texting. <laughs> so don't behave like a prisoner. Right. All right. So, Morgan, table. get rid of that resentment you have towards your parents. We have another question. This is from Barton Palm Springs. Um, I had a dinner party faux pas this past weekend. Uh, I was involved in a rather animated conversation and a bit of food flew out of my mouth and landed on the woman that I was talking to. I held my expression. It didn't change, but my, my mind was racing. I mean, should I say something? Should I wait for her to say something, assuming that she even saw it? Should I use my napkin and try to wipe it away uh, and then apologize? Um, neither of us did or said anything. Uh, for that matter, she might still be walking around with a bit of food on her jacket. But what would have been the proper etiquette to handle uh, kind of a bad situation like that. Appreciate it. Well, guys, what do you think? What do you think? Go for it. The, the obvious answer, excuse yourself and apologize. <laughs> like, let them know. <laughs> really? Oh, really? That wasn't my obvious answer. Maybe if I just don't That's say anything, no one will notice the food <laughs> flying out of my mouth. No, 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 no. It's incumbent on the person from whose mouth the food flew <laughs> to say oh, something. Oh, very good. <laughs> Pardon yes. me. Excuse me. That was not intentional. I'm so sorry. Let me get a napkin or something. Even if they didn't see it? There's yeah, not like a no, more I subtle way to... Uh... You know why? Because of exactly what Bart says at the end. For all <laughs> I know, she's still walking around with food on that jacket. <laughs> like, yeah. if she doesn't know, let her know about it. But it's... then you could win points. If she doesn't notice, you end the conversation and counter her later and say, oh, excuse me, there's some broccoli on your jacket. <laughs> Oh, what a kind, wow. what a kind person! I swear it didn't come out of my mouth. You get double sure. etiquette points, right? That's there. right. I'm going to make you CEO of my corporation. She then That's says, "That's right. Hey, whatever works for you all." <laughs> all right, posts. Thank you so much once again for coming by and telling our audience how to behave. Oh, thank you so Such much for pleasure. having us. Thanks for having us. So to recap, ask the manager. Uh huh. Own up to food projectiles. And it's okay to kill table fairies. (laughs) Poor table fairies. Murder them. Yeah. But of course, those rules won't help you navigate every social situation. No. So, audience, if you've got an etiquette question that wasn't answered today, send it to us, and it might be answered on next week's show. You can email us via our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, or call the Dinner Party Hotline, a.k.a. the phone, at Brendan's Cubicle. It's 213-621-3554. eavesdrop. Author Heidi Julewitz is a Guggenheim Fellow and co-founder of the magazine The Believer. Her new novel, The Vanishers, came out this week. Today we overhear her read a few dinner party-worthy excerpts. Hi, I'm Heidi Julewitz. This novel is about a young woman who runs afoul of her mentor at the elite psychic institute where she's studying. This mentor becomes jealous of this uh, woman's talents and launches a psychic attack against her, which is essentially a way of making someone sick with your mind. And I use this as a metaphor throughout the book to look at the ways we all affect, occasionally even sicken, the people that we love. The story I'm about to tell you could be judged preposterous. Fine. Judge how you must. Protect yourself by scare-quoting me as the so-called psychic, the so-called victim of a psychic attack. Quarantine this account however you must so that you can safely hear it. What happened to me could never happen to you. 
tell yourself that, even though what happened to me happens to people like you all the time. In the beginning, an attack can look just like regular life. You wake to discover eyelashes on your pillow, bruises on your skin where you've never been touched. You smell a stranger on your bedsheets, and that stranger is you. As the weeks pass, you notice other humiliations. An unceasing bout of acid reflux and an irritable bowel. Gums that bleed when you sip hot tea. Fingernails that snap when you push your hands through the sleeves of a sweater. And so it goes, your bodies hurtle along a failure trajectory that no doctor can explain. They told me it was all in my head. Namely, I was to blame. I was the sickness. Don't the healthy always suspect the afflicted? She drove herself to exhaustion. She was so stressed out. I say this humbly, not reproachfully. Someone else made me sick. Let me explain this in terms you can understand. People make people sick. It is not a stretch to claim this. What remains up for debate is the degree of malice involved when a person makes another person sick. Did your sister, for example, intend to give you her head cold? In most cases, not. But what if your sister or girlfriend or roommate or coworker intended to give you a cold? What if, while you were in the bathroom, he or she coughed on purpose into your water glass? After you become afflicted, after the doctors finger you as the cause, it's instinctual to blame others for your physical misfortune. In retaliation, you become the secret curator of the suffering of others. Homebound now, you do online searches for people from your past. You're pleased to discover that your college roommate's looks have been lost, that a former co-worker's startup went bankrupt, that an ex-girlfriend's Broadway dreams did not pan out. You spend your days monitoring demises. You become, over time, the connoisseur of downfall. But what if you are not the only victim here? What if your daily online visits to this person whose ruin you've charted are not so benign? What if you are not a spectator to her demise? What if you're to blame for her life? In other words, this is not just a story about how you can become sick by knowing other people. This is a story about how other people can become sick by knowing you. Author Heidi Julevitz reading from her new novel, The Vanishers. It just hit stores this week. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. Time for Chattering Class. This is the part of the show where we are schooled in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the topic is something you might be eating at your dinner party, namely sushi. And our teacher is filmmaker David Gelb. His documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, just opened in Los Angeles. It is about the famed sushi chef Jiro Ono. And David, welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. You are very welcome. Thanks for making the movie. For those who don't know, how highly regarded is Jiro in the culinary world? Well, Jiro Ono is an 86-year-old sushi chef, um, widely regarded as the greatest sushi chef of all time. He has a small restaurant in the basement of an office building right next to a subway station. It's a 10-seat bar. You get 20 pieces of sushi for about $400, and it's the best sushi in the world. It's absolutely incredible tasting. It better be. I I was watching the movie. It said 30,000 yen for like basically 15 minutes of eating. I did not know what that translated to. $400. Yeah, it's it's just under 400 depending on what extras you get because he's getting the absolute best of every ingredient in the market. So if you order an extra piece of tuna, your bill could just jump. Basically, you spend a lot of time working with a master. Tell us a few things that maybe the casual eater doesn't know about sushi, but you were surprised to learn. Well, the first big surprise to Westerners would probably be that um, the, the rice is just as important as the fish, if not more important. In fact, Jiro says that it's 70% rice, 30% fish. It's, it's the rice that makes a sushi restaurant great. 
and it's the rice that elevates the fish. And it's interesting, in the movie, they go, he really goes on at almost hilarious length about how proud he is of the pressure that he cooks his rice under. There's like a lid that he puts on the pot that you need two hands to put on there, and then there's like a, a pot full of water that he puts on top of that. What does the pressure have to do with anything? Well, the pressure has to do with the texture and, and shape of the rice. So he's using a specific type of rice that when cooked under high pressure, it becomes very fluffy. But at the same time, it retains its texture and shape. Uh, each individual grain has its own identity. But it's still, when you eat it, it just kind of, um, it's just light. And uh, it's. I wish I, there was an easier way to explain it. But, I wish um, you'd brought some. By the way, I guess you must have eaten quite a bit of his food as you shot this, right? Um, well, I was lucky that, you know, it became my job to hang out with the world's best sushi chef. That's why you took this job, isn't it? And then, you know, somebody has to eat it, you know. Oh, it sucks. Yeah. Do, I mean, are you able to eat sushi with regular, non-highly pressurized cooked rice anymore? Can you just like... You know, the, the I, I've been spoiled by Jiro's rice. The, it, it is possible to get good fish pretty much anywhere. Anywhere in the world, you're able to, you know, fly in really high-quality fish, cost-permitting. But the rice just takes a lot of skill. So uh, one other thing maybe that uh, perhaps you didn't know about sushi before you started this thing? Sure. Well, I didn't realize um, how much of a team effort sushi is. Um, at, at Jiro's restaurant, which is called Sukiyabashi Jiro, it's his decades of experience that have developed all the recipes and things that, the, that his apprentices are making. But 95% of the work of sushi is done before the customers even enter the restaurant. And this work is in painstaking preparation that starts as early as 6 in the morning, every morning. They have to massage the octopus for a full hour before it's tender and flavorful enough for him to serve. I just I didn't know how much work goes into creating something that's perfectly simple. Uh, the thing that springs to mind from the film when you talk about this is the one apprentice who has to learn how to make the egg sushi, which I've only rarely had in the first place. It seems sort of like an afterthought to me. This in Jiro's restaurant is kind of the pinnacle of sushi making. Well, I, I think you're, you're, you're so right. The egg sushi is kind of, you know, uh, a lot of people kind of scoff at it in the United States because they think, oh, well, I can make eggs at home. I'm here for fish. But um, at a great sushi restaurant, the egg is the final test to tell if you are, you know, a worthy chef of the restaurant. At Tsukiyabashi Jiro, before you're even allowed to attempt to make the egg, you have to have been working there for 10 years. And then you're allowed to try to make it. The character in our film, Nakazawa, attempted to make the egg 200 times before Jiro decided that it was good enough to serve to a customer. What is it about it that is so difficult? It's just about, for, on, on Jiro's level of perfection, there's, there's not a set recipe that you have to do it this way every single time. You have to um, make minute adjustments based on the ingredients that you have. In the case of the egg sushi, they, they create their own shrimp paste. So depending on the type of shrimp that they have that day, they have to adjust the quantity of it. Same with the type of mountain yam that they have. Same with the type of eggs that they're getting. And then the final difficult part is flipping the egg in the pan. And that involves four chopsticks that you have um, wedged into your knuckles. It takes a really long time to get that right. I do have to ask, it's just the amount of detail that goes into this kind of thing. Is it, to your mind, does it really yield something that is so sublimely better that it's worth, A, the time and effort, and B, the cost? Absolutely. You know, there's no doubt about that. It's an art. You know, I'm not a painter, but I can put paint on a canvas and call it a painting. Um, and that's what a lot of sushi chefs in the West really do. Um, it seems simple. But it just takes decades of experience to master. And Jiro says, you know, the closer that he gets to the finish line, the farther away it becomes. He's 86 years old. He says that he's now just getting the hang of it. David Gelb, his movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi just opened in select theaters. And check our blog for Gelb's recommendations of a couple of great sushi joints you don't need a passport to get to. I have the passport. It's the $400 that's hard to come up with for me. <laughs> right. But you, you do get what you pay for. Apparently, each piece is so perfect Jiro would only let Gelb photograph them for a few seconds after they hit the plate because after that he considered them imperfect or something. Oh yeah. You know, old fish can kill you. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> he's it's just he's health oriented. All right, we're gonna take a break, but coming up, Ewan McGregor talks politics and motorcycles when the dinner party returns. <laughs> 
Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear from our guest of honor, actor Ewan McGregor. But first, it's time for the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food, or since we just talked about sushi, <laughs> it's the part of the show where we continue talking about food. <laughs> we like food. Evidently. And Rico, speaking of food we like, remember years ago when I uh, first had a Korean barbecue taco and it was so good that yeah. I was overcome with joy. And for like a fleeting moment, I thought world peace was nigh, that people would stop texting while driving, <laughs> that Congress would pass a law requiring companies to let employees take naps. You enjoyed the tacos. I really enjoyed I those tacos. Well, it happened again. The other night at a new Brooklyn restaurant called Taldi, yeah. I ordered pretzel dumplings. These would be like Asian dumplings with a with a pretzel wrapping around them? Sort of. More like Bavarian Chinese nuggets made of gold and rotisseried angel. <laughs> that sounds kind of satanic. All right. Yeah, me. you're right. There was actually no angel meat in the dumplings. Phew. Uh, but to find out what was in these things, I went back the next day and asked the guy who invented them, Chef Dale Taldi. It's a very traditional pork and chive dumpling that we pretzel. The outside of the um, the dumpling. I, was pretzeling a verb before you made these dumplings? Pretzeling, I think we've yeah, I think we've turned it into a verb. It's basically pork, chive, a few other seasonings, and then we take uh, wonton wrappers, cook them in baking soda, and then we brush them with egg wash and butter and pretzel salt, and then we pan fry them in a little bit of oil, and then we bake, finish them in the oven, and they become the outside of the skin of the dumpling skin looks like a pretzel. Where did you get the idea for this? I used to work at Budokan in New York City, and the chef there. Is from like Pennsylvania, and he, you know, we were kind of just fooling around, and he was making pretzels. And I work at almost exclusively Asian kitchens, so I was like, hey, I've never made pretzels before. Is that all it takes to make a pretzel? And he's like, yeah, you just make your dough, and then you boil them, and then you pan fry them. So I was just like, why can't we do that with dumplings? Because you boil dumplings anyway, and then you pan fry them or bake them. So there's like a parallel process. That you're like, oh, that's almost the same yeah. thing with some different ingredients. Exactly. It was. It, it just in my mind, it is. We do that with dumplings already. Why couldn't you do that with a dumpling? You know, I've always loved pretzels, so why not mix the two together? So dumplings are beloved food. They're just like comfort food. They're so fun to eat. You can eat a zillion dumplings. Pretzels are also kind of a beloved food. Why did it take so long, do you think, this pairing to happen? I mean, it was definitely like a fat kid move. <laughs> what, what do you mean? I mean, it's like I get like pizza and dip it in a ranch. These are like fat kid moves. Like I'm going to turn a dumpling that already tastes good and I'm going to turn it into pretzel. Fat kid move. Did they teach you that in culinary school, fat kid moves? No, I mean, you know, when you go from, like myself, I was 145 pounds when I got to New York, and now I'm pushing 180. The, you know, you become a master of fat kid moves. I, I like how you have this pride. Why do you think other, I mean, a lot of restaurants would shy away from maybe hybrid stuff? I don't know if there's just a, a negative connotation to fusion. I can't stand behind that because that's who I am. Like, I'm an Asian-American. I grew up in Chicago and now live in New York. All these influence of moving, being part of a Filipino household, eating stewed oxtails and fish head stew and then going to school and being fed like square pizza and tater tots like i can love eating my mom's fish head stews and i could love eating really like crappy square pizza and tater tots you know the inspiration i don't know i mean to me it's in, like inspiration is you know where you come from and, and how you live you know all right well can we eat for sure so now we've we've blanched a dumpling right now and we're going to yeah, that looks like the like really yellow gooey butter uh, well, it's an egg yolk. Yeah, it's egg, it's an egg yolk, so it's egg wash first on the dumpling, and then we hit it with a little bit of butter for health sake, <laughs> just to add to the fat kid move. You're just gonna FKM that. Yeah, yeah. FKM. And now you're not gonna add some salt. And then we're adding pretzel salt. It's actually the new fleur de sel. Really? It's the new super hip salt. This what, pretzel salt. What what distinguishes it from uh, fleur de sel or kosher salt or? I have no idea. <laughs> I actually think it's really cheap salt, but it, it tastes so good. So now we have a pan here getting hot, a little bit of oil. With most dumplings that are, you know, pot stickers, you boil and then you fry. Yeah, so this is the second. Now here's a kind of frying method that we're using. So you're going to put them in. we got four of them here. You got it. And the, the key to these is that you get the pan really hot. Because you, you basically want to sear it and get it blackened like a pretzel. Exactly. And our, our ovens down here are set at like about 500 degrees. We're going to pan sear and then put it in and then it bakes it. These are pretty complex to make. They're tedious. They're labor-intensive. When you set up the menu, were like, were you like, oh yeah, that's gonna, this is gonna kill. When I set up the menu, I was like, and then I started seeing how they sold. I was like, that was a big mistake. <laughs> Why? Because they're just so labor-intensive and. No, it just, it just ended up dominating the appetizer menu. 
I was like, oh, no one wants to order anything else, huh? But yeah, I mean, I guess this is the thing. It's like you're a rock band. You write this one silly song. Everyone falls in love with it. You're stuck with playing Smells Like Teen Spirit the rest of your career. But you know what? You have to love it. There's worse problems. Yeah, you got to embrace it. Oh, man. They're looking good. Until they just get golden brown. You can hear it. You can see now they're starting to get... Starting to harden. And is that foam? Is that what's going to come out of my mouth when I have a heart attack? That's the uh, butter just oozing out of your arteries. <laughs> you know, everything's meant to share. So have, you know, if just two people, you're only really, you know, hopefully you're, only, you're eating two dumplings. But if you're being greedy, you're eating all four. But I ate all four last night. That, that was kind of an FKM. It was a fat move. <laughs> nice. All right. How about you eat yours and then I'll go. Man, hear that crunch? They're delicious. All right. I'm going in. Oh, my God. It is so good. It is so good. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think we need to put the word fusion in the past, and I think we should just call it um, FKMs. Rapid moves. So, Rico, other items on Chef Taldi's menu include shrimp toast with a fried egg on top, (laughs) pad thai with bacon and fried oysters, (laughs) and a shave... And a shaved ice coconut dessert with tapioca and yeah. Captain Crunch. Wow. It's elegant stuff. I'm going to pull a thin kid move and not yeah. order <laughs> most of that. That's a smart kid move, I think. <laughs> not all at once. Folks, if you think of something that you would like to pretzel or add Captain Crunch to, tell us about it at our website, dinnerpartydownload.org. Our guest of honor this week is actor Ewan McGregor. He first became known around the world for his starring role in the era-defining movie, Train Spotting, if I may say that it's era-defining. He was one of the star-crossed lovers in Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Last year, he starred in the Oscar-winning movie Beginners, and uh, more recently in Steven Soderbergh's Haywire. His new film is a screen adaptation of the book Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. And you and welcome. Hello, how are you? I am fine. Uh, I have to tell you, as I was telling people this week that I was going to be interviewing you, the first reaction of most people was always kind of like, oh, man, that guy is so sexy or cool or some version thereof, sexy cool. But in in researching this, you turned down the role of James Bond in the James Bond reboot. And now here you are playing kind of a geeky salmon fisheries scientist. I feel like you often specifically make the choice not to do these kind of traditionally you know, sexy macho roles. Do you, do you think that's true? Well, the first thing is to say that I didn't turn down Bond. That's a kind of urban myth, which is kind of a cool myth to have out there. But I did speak to them for a while about it. But it wasn't ever. It didn't ever get to a stage where they offered it to me and I turned it down, no. All right, well, that destroys my question. But nonetheless, well, I do... Still, I think uh, I, I'm not... I don't find myself interested to... I don't know many kind of macho movie macho kind of guys. I don't know that they really exist other than in cinema. And I... And if they do, I always think they're putting it on. It's not kind of very interesting to me in terms of movies and stuff. The idea of just being sort of two-dimensionally male isn't very interesting. All right, well, let's talk about this film, which definitely has a lot of dimensions. It's basically a romantic comedy in a lot of ways between you and a young woman who are trying to sort of help this Arab sheik achieve this boondoggle in the Yemen of creating a salmon run. But there's also this whole satirical plot line with a press secretary who wants to sort of spin this project into a great example of UK-Middle East relations. At this time, the Arab Spring going on, making a romantic comedy set in that world is such a delicate tightrope to walk. What, first of all, was the Arab Spring happening when this was in production? Had it happened yet? Yeah, it was happening, I think. Uh, we made the film last summer, so... It was certainly well underway, I think. Did that change at all the way you thought about the, the material or the way it was approached? Not really, because I feel that the film is... Um, the political, satirical element of the film is completely justified and pokes fun at the British government, but also any government, really, and the spin doctoring that goes on. The very idea that we have somebody whose job it is to spin facts to give to the public is... Sort of unbelievable to me. I think it's really weird. It's like professional lying. It's just but bananas to me, really. Maxwell, better be good. There's been a bombing in the Middle East. What? My God, I didn't think we could make the war in Afghanistan any less popular, but hey, even I can be wrong. We need a good news story from the Middle East, a big one. And we need it now. You've got an hour. Get on with it. And so I was very happy with the political, satirical element of the film, because I think it's really justified. I think also... um, 
it's not what we would expect from a movie with any kind of Middle Eastern element in it at the moment. I mean, I think there's humor in it. There's certainly romance in it. It's a complicated, clever script. Actually, you're getting at something that I wanted to talk about. I feel like UK films are more willing to sort of have politics as a background of a movie that isn't necessarily essentially political. This is essentially, I feel like, a love story. Mm -hmm. The movie Love Actually, there's the same thing. It's a romantic comedy with the subplot of the British prime minister in conflict with the US president. I remember Billy Elliot, that's about a kid trying to become a dancer, and there's like this whole subtext of union strikes going on. There's a film called Brassed Off back in the day, which had this exactly the same thing about the minor strike. Exactly. Mm -hmm. What is it about UK films where that seems like more of a part of life, I guess? Well, I think our country is much smaller, so I think the political decisions that are made affect people maybe in a more um, personal way. You know, when Thatcher started closing the coal mines in Britain, it put hundreds of thousands of men and women out of work, uh, left to fend for themselves. And it that, wasn't just like right. one state affected by it, it's no, the whole country. That's right. It's the, uh, maybe, maybe it's just the kind of concentration of the effect of politics in Britain that makes it very present. I don't know. I think it's a very political place, Great Britain. I'm, I'm hopeless at politics. I've never been able to be interested in it. I find I, I, a lot of my movies do have political comment in them. The Ghostwriter I made with Polanski is quite a political film. But I couldn't bear making a film about party politics or something because I find it really incredibly boring and I find politicians just consistently reveal themselves to be untrustworthy cheating people <laughs> uh, all right well let's talk about something less boring we ask a question of everyone on the show it is usually tell us something we don't know either about yourself or just sort of something general about the world you made two documentaries about your transcontinental motorcycle trips and I would like to know the kind of least known amazing place, in your opinion, to ride a motorcycle. Well, all over the place, yeah. I mean, we rode in some of the more remotest areas in the world. So um, one of the most challenging, I think, would be the very last thousand miles that we rode in Russia, in the extreme east of Russia. There's a very famous road called the Road of Bones that Stalin had his political prisoners build. And we rode it when, at the only time of the year when it's rideable, when it's not frozen. The bridges have long since been knocked down and swept away. So, you know, when you come across a river, you have to push the bike through. And in some instances, we had to flag down truckers and lift our bikes up onto the back of the truck to get across the deeper rivers. But that was probably the most incredible adventure experience that we had. And then other roads like the highlands of Ethiopia are unbelievable for riding. Can I just say, none of what you're talking about is two-dimensional, but it is definitely sexy cool. I'm sorry. Wow, road of bones. <laughs> it's intense. I think every town should have a road of bones. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, the target. You want to head down Main Street and take a, a right on Wisteria, hang a left on Road of Bones, and you're there. Yeah. There's a great day spa on Road of Bones. That's <laughs> the Road of Bones day spa. That's the one. All right. We've met our guest of honor, shared some tasty vittles. Let's close out the show with the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And our guest is actress Casey Wilson from the acclaimed TV comedy Happy Endings. Its second season ends in a few weeks. She's got just the list for the end of our episode. Hi, I am Casey Wilson, and I play Penny on Happy Endings, which is on American Broadcasting Channel, a.k.a. ABC. And this is my list of favorite endings, some of them happy. Not all, though. Not all. Uh, number one in terms of endings, and I guess these should all have spoiler alert in front of them, <laughs> every single one, is the conclusion of the television show The Comeback. It just had one season on HBO. It's uh, Lisa Kudrow and Michael Patrick King created it. He's the creator of Sex and City, and she's obviously it's Phoebe on Friends. And she's a kind of out-of-work actress that has a documentary crew follow her for her big sitcom comeback. And she's grating and vulnerable and annoying, and it's so uncomfortable and funny. The end of the comeback is Lisa Kudrow's character hates the showrunner that run this sitcom in her show, so she talks really bad about him. She's like, you know what? I know this guy's going to talk so badly about me. She's like, he's an animal. He's a pig. I hate him. Maybe he has a problem with a woman that he doesn't want to have sex with. I don't know. I'm not a therapist. All I know is that after months and months of personal attacks, yes, I hit him. 
but only after he made a very painful remark about my scoliosis. And, and then when they I'm play back the documentary, he's like, she's a consummate professional. She's amazing. There's no one better to work with. And she has a complete meltdown. You betrayed me. I didn't edit it. They did. I can't even show my face on The Tonight Show tomorrow. I quit. You tell them I quit. No, no. You know what? On second thought, they can watch me quit tomorrow night on The Tonight Show. But in the very end, she goes on Leno, and actually her documentary is a huge success because she's such a terrible person. America loves her. <laughs> so it's I, I like it because I'm in the business watching it, but I think other people related to her character just being so desperate. There's something relatable to all those shows where characters are just hard to stomach. Number two is the final episode of The Oprah Winfrey Show. And I thought, oh, I want to watch this, but I did not know what we were in for, and we were in for an emotional roller coaster. It was simply just her on a stage, no guests, and she just delivered basically what amounted to almost a sermon, and it was the most moving hour of television I've ever seen. But what I want you to know, as this show ends, each one of you has your own platform. Do not let the trappings here fool you. Mine is a stage in a studio. Yours is wherever you are. Oh, she spoke for an hour. Oh, yeah. Big time. And it was just beautifully spoken, beautifully written. She wrote it herself. And it was really inspirational. And it's kind of stuck with me. And I know this is where I should be doing a lot of jokes. But I'm genuine when I say I thought it was the most dignified hour of television I've seen in some time. Seems like Number three is Annie Hall, if you have not seen it, is uh, basically kind of comedy with uh, Woody Allen based around a relationship of, that he has with Diane Keaton, who's this lovably, zany woman. And um, in the ending, Woody Allen and Diane Keaton's characters have split up, and they've had this great relationship, and they're just meeting again on the street. It was on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. She had moved back to New York. She was living in Soho with some guy. We had lunch sometime after that, and... Uh, just uh, kicked around old times. And then that song she sings, uh, Seems Like Old Times, comes on. It's heartbreaking. I think the ending of that movie sneaks up on you because the, if you've seen the movie over and over, you're used to the laughs and there's huge laughs in it. But it also feels right that they're not together. I think it is uplifting in a way to see they had a wonderful relationship and it didn't work out. And still there's that fondness and nostalgia. I thought of that old joke, you know, the... This, this guy goes to a psychiatrist and says, Doc, uh, my brother's crazy. He thinks he's a chicken. And uh, the doctor says, well, why don't you turn him in? And the guy says, I would, but I need the eggs. I guess that's pretty much now how I feel about relationships. You know, they're totally irrational and crazy and absurd. And But uh, I guess we keep going through it because uh, most of us need the eggs. You. The guest list from actress Casey Wilson this season of her TV show, Happy Endings, ends in a few weeks. And our show ends now. Uh, Thanks to Jackson Musker. He's the assistant producer of The Dinner Party. Thanks also to Brendan Willard, Peter Clowney, Craig Curtis, and Judy McAlpin. See you next week. Bon appétit.